Hi, and welcome to Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland, Washington. We are a church for the neighborhood, whether you're a local neighbor or from far away, all are welcome here. We are pleased to present to you our weekly Sunday sermons. Our head pastor is James Cuman, and you can find more information about us on our website at inglewoodpc.org. Scripture reading is number 6, 25 to 26. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Good morning, Inglewood Presbyterian Church. My name's Travis Fletcher. I'm the pastor at Bethany Eastside. And I've said hi to many of you before in person when we were worshiping together. And I uh, just want to say hi to you again. It's been a little while. It's great to be able to be with you all this morning. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, that's where I was ordained, and so this uh, feels like a bit of a homecoming for me, and I want to say thanks to Pastor James and to your session for inviting me uh, to lead you in uh, the scriptures today. It's an honor to be able to preach and to teach with all of you. So would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we turn now to the Word, and we're thankful that we have the living Word, Christ, we have the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have all these things that you have given graciously. Thank you. As we talk about shalom today, your peace, your wholeness, we ask that these words that I would speak, the words that you would deliver to our hearts through your scripture, that it would settle in each of us a greater desire for your peace and a greater hunger for your peace to thrive around the world. We love you and we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, when I was growing up, I would occasionally go into my dad's office at a office building not too far from where I lived. I grew up in Houston. My dad was a personal injury attorney. And when I would go into his office, there'd be all kinds of fun little things to explore. He had a golf ball collection. He had, you know, different CDs that we could listen to. And then over in the corner by the window, he had a life-sized human spinal cord, not a real one, because that's gross, but a illustrative uh, spinal cord, one that you would see like in a doctor's office or uh, maybe in a display at a museum of some kind. And it would just show, I mean, literally, like from your neck all the way down to your tailbone, the human spine. Now, why would my dad, who's a lawyer, have a model of a human spine in his office? Well, the answer is pretty simple. He was a personal injury attorney, and a lot of his clients had been involved in auto accidents. And what's the number one injury that people suffer when they're in a minor or major auto accident? It's injuries to the neck and to the back. So my dad's clients would come in and he'd be talking with them. He always personally interviewed each client, spent lots and lots of time with them, hearing their story. And one of the things that he wanted to be able to do was to explain to them why they felt so out of whack, why this seemingly minor car accident or even a major one continued to have such painful repercussions for them. 
why they continue to have back pain and neck pain. And so he would use this model to show them, well, you know, your L4 and your L6, they probably got dislodged there because it was this type of a collision. He was good at it. And it helped his clients understand the nature of the pain that they were in. We've had some pretty shocking events in our country this last week, like you, as I watched the events unfold on Wednesday, then read about it in the papers on Thursday. It just, it made my stomach churn to see our nation's capital be engulfed in violence and rioting and just scenes that I could never have imagined observing with my own eyes of people breaking into the capital and disrupting a peaceful process. It's unbelievable. And you better believe that as a citizen, I have felt kind of out of whack this week. It feels like there is something deeply wrong with our world. And we know as followers of Jesus Christ that this problem is sin. And it's one of the many iterations of sin. What we saw on Wednesday and what we've been seeing play out for years in our political processes, this is nothing new. And yet this sense of being disjointed, this sense of, of things not being right, it goes even deeper than sin. It goes to this longing of the human heart. That's one of the greatest themes in all of scripture, which is this theme of shalom. We don't have shalom right now in our world, friends. I don't need to tell you that, but I'm telling you that because it's important. We are out of whack with the way that God wants the world to be. He doesn't want people storming the Capitol. That is not the work of God. He does not want people to be disrupting leaders in their work. That is not the work of God. The church universally says this is not okay. But what is the thing we want to drive toward? We can, we can call things out all day long, and there's a time and a place to do that for sure. This is one of those moments, church, where we need to be calling out this violence and this unrest. And yet, it's one thing to call out violence and unrest, and it's another thing entirely to call people toward something. Or in this case, someone. Jesus, our Prince of Peace, our Prince of Shalom. Shalom is a beautiful Hebrew word. You'll hear it if you go to Israel or the Holy Land. Shalom, shalom. It is a greeting. It is a blessing. But it is also a hope and an expectation for peace and wholeness. Not just the absence of conflict. Not just the day that will come, friends, when there is no longer people storming the capital and breaking our laws and causing all this harm. No, shalom is deeper. Shalom is the wholeness and the fullness of the presence of Christ and the restoration that only he can bring. And so today we're going to talk briefly about shalom. Boy, do we need to hear about it this week, church. We're going to talk about what it is, how does it come to us, and what can we do with it? What is it, how does it come to us, and what can we do with it? First of all, what is it? It's one of the biggest themes in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament, the equivalent word to shalom is the Greek word irene, which we won't spend as much time on today. But the Old Testament word for shalom comes up 237 times in the pages of the Old Testament. And it first comes to us in the book of Genesis, the way that God, the Spirit of God, the text says, hovers over the waters. This is Genesis 1 and 2. There's chaos in the world that God is creating. And when the Spirit of God comes, there is peace. There is a movement away from chaos. When God calls the people of Israel into being, he says, you're going to be a light to the nations. You're going to be a city on a hill. Because part of that calling is to uniquely reflect the shalom of God to the world. And in the text that we heard read for us a moment ago, Numbers chapter 6, we need to understand that shalom is kind of the culmination of this blessing. 
I'll read it for us again because it's so brief. You've heard this before if you've been in church. This is the Aaronic blessing, the blessing that Aaron was instructed to give and to disseminate through the priestly order. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, literally show his face to you and give you peace. That's that word shalom. So what's happening here? Well, in the book of Numbers, the people of Israel have, have been set free. They're done with their captivity in Egypt. They've experienced the miracle of crossing the Red Sea into freedom. And now that they found themselves in this new land of freedom, this exodus, this wilderness experience, Moses, who is their leader, starts to look around and goes, oh my gosh, we have work to do. Like, we're in a chaotic situation. He's leading probably a couple thousand people on a 40-year journey through the desert. Do you want to sign up for that? I certainly don't. 40 years are ahead of them. And we think, many scholars think, Numbers is kind of this book that sets the table for what's happening in the early days of that 40-year period and kind of what are some of the rules and regulations that the people of Israel need to survive in order to make it through the next 38 years ahead of them. Number six is probably written in year two of the Exodus. So if you think about it this way, think about a long, long journey you've been on. Maybe you've been on a road trip. Maybe you kind of did, you know, a cross country tour. You went around the world. Think about like day three of that trip, like the first 10% of that trip where you went like, hey, this is still kind of fun. We're having a good time. But then you're realizing this is going to get hard. This is going to get tiring. This is going to get frustrating. As a community, the people of Israel are running a marathon, but they don't really know it's going to be a marathon yet. They're in a scorching desert. They are totally dependent on the Lord for food, for water, for shelter, for their clothing. They are together, but they're probably not having lots of fun. The people are already tired. They're already whining. And by the way, the people of Israel in the, in the Exodus narrative, they get a gold medal in the Olympics of whining. They're hungry. They need shalom. They need wholeness. They need peace. And Moses calls together the priests because he knows he can't do this alone. This is too big of a job for him. He calls the spiritual leaders of the people together and says, hey, hey, listen up. These people are going to go crazy on us if we don't start pointing them toward the peace of God. This is a poem, this blessing that Aaron speaks from God to be disseminated through the priests. It is a blessing. All three couplets begin with the same phrase, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And that's really important for us to understand because shalom is God's idea and it is God's gift. Shalom is God's idea and it is God's gift. It is based solely on the strength of God. The reason each couplet starts with the Lord is because that's where shalom starts, is with the Lord. And it's why our pursuit of peace on our own will inevitably come up far short of what shalom is from our God. God says to Aaron and the priests, this is Israel's calling. Throughout the marathon that you're going to run ahead of you, you will need my shalom. You will need my peace. You will need my wholeness. Help them live it out, Aaron. Help them live it out, priests. And church, I want you to hear this. This is not just the calling of a bunch of people in the Old Testament. This is our calling today. Inglewood Presbyterian Church, you need to be a people of shalom. 
Bethany Community Church, my church, you need to be a people of shalom. The church around the world, you must become a people of shalom. But how does that happen? That's where we turn to the second point. How does shalom come to us? If we can look down this highway and we see shalom coming at us, what does that look like? It looks like this. Shalom is this sense of wholeness and completion. And the best image that I've seen kind of described in my studies for this is like picturing a big brick wall. Picture a brick wall. Maybe you've done a retaining wall in your front or backyard. Maybe you've seen a a brick wall being constructed somewhere. But picture a big old brick wall and picture gaps in the wall. There's little places where there should be a brick, but it's missing. Or maybe a brick is broken. Or maybe it's just, it's not put together in quite the right way. Shalom is the way that God's people are called to come up to that wall, whatever it is, and to put a brick in there. And to reinforce the concrete over here. And to make sure that it's held together properly over here. Shalom is the way that God uses God's people to rebuild peace and wholeness and restoration. And it is a process. It takes time. So how does it come to us? Number six tells us it is a gift. It actually uses the phrase, the Lord says, give you my peace. I will give my peace to you. Here it is. It's a gift. In John 14, Jesus echoes this very same sentiment. Turn there with me, if you would, to John chapter 14 in the Bible. This is where Jesus is uh, giving his farewell address to his disciples before he's arrested, before he heads up to the cross. And he gives them the promise of peace. He says this to his disciples. I'll read John 14, starting in verse 25. I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you. Peace, Irene, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. The Holy Spirit will bring this gift, will will animate and empower the gift of peace. Now, for many of us, let's say we want something. Let's say as I've been talking about peace and shalom this morning, you're going, oh, I need that so bad in my life right now. I need that in my marriage. I need that with my children. I need that with my grandchildren. Many of us, when we want something, we create a plan to get that thing. I need need a step-by-step level of instructions, Pastor Travis. How do we get to shalom? Well, it's good to have a plan for a lot of things. But a step-by-step plan towards shalom, I'm sorry to say it's not going to work. And here's why. Shalom is not achieved, it's received. I'll say that again. Shalom is not achieved, it is received. It is not something that we can architect our way toward. It is instead given solely as a gift from God. It comes to us as a gift. The giver of this good gift to his church is Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the Lord of the church. And get this, church, there is no prerequisite. There's no requirement. There's no courses you need to complete first before the peace of Jesus Christ comes to you. Because that's not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And he brings his peace To those who call upon his name. He brings life and salvation 
to those who call upon his name. When we first heard the gospel, when we first heard the truth about Jesus Christ, we didn't have any kind of merit or earnings that allowed us to reach that point. There was no plan. There was simply the gift of God saying, look, you need this. Here is my peace. A key step for me in my journey of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, when I was a teenager, when I was a foul-mouthed, disobedient middle school student, I uh, went on a mission trip and I saw a dramatic play representing the life of Jesus Christ. And I saw the person playing Jesus carrying a cross on their back across this stage. And I thought to myself, that's a gigantic cross. How could one person carry that? How could that possibly happen? And I was convicted about the depths of my sin. Even at that stage in my life, I knew I had a ton of pain and a ton of stuff that I needed to work on. But what I had to receive in that moment was the only one who can carry that is the Savior. I can't build a plan for my own personal salvation. Try as I might, try as we all do, that plan ain't going to work. We need to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus carries that gigantic cross across the stage for us, not me, because it would crush me. And through him, it will bring life and peace. We need to be reminded of the gospel, to wrap ourselves up in it like a shawl, to, to be in prayer, to study, to confess, to journal, to have accountability with our small groups and close Christian friends. These are not activities Christians do. These are things that remind us of the truth of who we are and what we need in Christ, which is shalom, which is peace that we will never find on our own. The default mode of the human heart is earning, is trying to create a plan, is trying to get somewhere by ourselves. And what we need to remember, church, is that shalom, it is a gift that is given. So what can we do with it? This is the final question. What can we do with it? Like the people of Israel, people who follow Jesus Christ, shalom is a lifelong pursuit. Shalom is a lifelong pursuit. We have peace with Jesus Christ. And we think maybe like you hear the word peace and you go, oh, that's nice. That's like, you know, at the end of a long work week and you sit down and you put your feet up and you have your favorite adult beverage and you watch a movie, you just feel that kind of smushy, mushy, wearing sweatpants kind of peace. No, no. Instead, think of Shalom as one of the highest parts of your calling as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Think of it as one of the most important things you could devote your time, devote your life to building. Paul outlines this in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 14. He just gives this brief but profound instruction to the people of God. He's talking about how to live together in the church. He's writing this to the church in Rome, a church operating in an incredible mission environment, a place of influence and power, much like where we operate these days. And it says this, let us then pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Church, let us pursue the things that make for peace, the the elements of peace, the, the little, the pieces of the construction set that we need to put together, this wall that needs to be rebuilt to make peace. So how do we do that? 
First of all, just to carry out the wall analogy a little bit further, let's say you come upon something in your life, and very clearly, it is not a place of peace. It's a new relationship at work, and you just can't figure out, like, why are we grinding our gears against each other? Like, what's going on here? Maybe someone new moves into your neighborhood. Maybe you go through a dry season in your marriage or, or a time of disruption with your children. Whatever you encounter, when you start to put together, like, oh, there's, there's pieces missing from this wall. The first thing you do is you bend your knees in prayer and you say, Lord, I think I've come up against something that does not have your peace. I think that's what I'm seeing here. If that's right, would you lead me toward a faithful next step? And if that's not right, would you help me to just let it go and entrust it to you? Church, not every time we experience a lack of peace are we necessarily called to be the agent of shalom there. That, that's, a, that's a weight and a responsibility too big for any person except Jesus Christ. So we always begin with a position of surrender and say, Lord, this is yours, not mine. And then if you hear that kind of okay, that nudge from the Lord, then you start grabbing a brick and going, all right, I want to put something back into this wall. I want to try to work on this relationship with my coworker. I want to try to spend more time with my spouse or my children because something ain't right. We got to fix this. If the Lord says, okay, you can pick up a brick and go to work on that wall. And so I just want to offer two practical encouragements around that. Next week, we will worship together, Inglewood and Bethany, via our Zoom call. And we will have a time of worship focused on God's call to be a people of justice and reconciliation, particularly around healing between the divisions in races in our nation. And so I just, wanted you, I just want to say, I believe that will be a vital time for both of our congregations to say, man, we got work to do. We got to rebuild this. We got to make sure that we are on the same page as we pursue racial healing and justice. So I just want to invite you to be a part of that next Sunday, January 17th. The second thing I want to do, I actually want to do together now, and it's to walk through a liturgy of Shalom. It's a lament it's a, it's a time where we can pray together and mourn and also pursue shalom. So wherever you are, I invite you to just lay down whatever's in your hands, put aside your notes, put aside your Bible for just a moment. And as we respond to this call to shalom, I want to invite you to join me in praying an ancient and simple prayer of the church. It goes like this, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Would you say that with me? Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And so in response to the chaos in Washington, D.C., in response to this really agitated state that we find our nation in, and even our whole world, I want to offer up this opportunity to pray. I'll lead us through these prayer responses. All you got to do is, as I start to say, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, join me in saying that. And then we'll finish our time in prayer with time to be silent before the Lord. So join me as we pray together. Father, thank you for this word. May it sink deeply into our hearts. And now as we turn our attention to prayer, would you be honored and glorified in our brokenness? We face situations right now where there are divisions in our country, there are divisions between neighbors, there are divisions in families about who we are called to be and what we are called to do. And this week we have seen violence and rioting 
and madness that will shock any of us. And so rather than trying to come up with words to explain it, instead, we just want to come to you with open hands and hearts and say, Lord, you are the keeper of shalom. Would you use us like you used Aaron and his priests to be builders of shalom? And so we want to hold out to you these ideas, these images, these concepts that have hit home this week. So, Lord, we lift up to you the wounded and the fearful and the brokenhearted and those who are dejected by the events of this past week, particularly in Washington, D.C. We say together as a church, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. For our leaders, elected, appointed, formal, informal, in every community, in our nation and our world, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. For those who would try to use violence to hurt others and disrupt our government, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. For our outgoing president, for our incoming president, for their respective administrations and supporters and parties, and for the future of our democracy, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. For those who courageously defended others this week, who protected the vulnerable, who continue to lean into their calling of leadership in a chaotic moment, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. For the poor and the marginalized and the neglected, for those who, would, who have not been able to work, who have lost their jobs, whose margins are thin, whose families are barely hanging on, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. For those with many resources, may those resources be used to build your kingdom and relieve the pain and suffering in our broken world. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. For those who are your disciples, may your light and hope blaze in us and through us in these dark days. And for your church, as we attempt daily to be the hands and feet of Jesus in such a season as this, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And I'll invite us all to repeat this refrain three more times as we close in prayer. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.